Okay, hello everyone. Good evening and welcome to When Movies Were Good, um, hosted by myself, Rachel, and my special guest star, Matt. Matt, how are you doing tonight? Um, we're still several kilometres away from each other recording. Uh, we're still like the eighth, what is it, the seventh week of uh, lockdown here in Victoria? Yeah, it seems like it will just go on and on and on forever. Luckily, <laughs> I have a lot of indoor hobbies. I'm... Uh, uh, I seem to be starting a new YouTube channel or building another model every other day, uh, so making the best of it. Yeah, actually, um, when we finish at the end, Matt, I'll get you to let the guys out there know about your new YouTube channel that you've started. So it's about a particular interest of yours, and I'm sure once it gets up and running a bit more, you'll have a lot of people really interested in it. All well, right. thanks for um, everyone joining us today apologies again about the sound we're still having to record remotely so we just do the best that we can we look forward to when we can do it in person because it just sounds a lot better and it flows a lot better so thanks for bearing with us uh, our two movies that we're doing today we're doing a film noir double probably the first of many that we could do in film noir so we're doing double indemnity one of the most famous film noirs out there we, um, 1944 directed by billy wilder and then, of course, The Big Sleep, starring Bogey and Bacall, 1946, um, and directed by Howard Hawks. So I, I, I wasn't sure I was that familiar with some of his other work, but I actually am, and I'm looking forward to see some more of his films. So, Matt, before we jump into our thoughts on um, the movies, and as I always say to Matt, we don't really review the movies, we discuss them and give our thoughts on them, um, because I find people that review movies, like they feel like their review is the only one that should matter and I, I really wanted yeah. us to get away from that and this what what do you think about that you know how you see some people reviewing movies and it's like if you don't agree with me you're wrong sort of thing <laughs> yeah definitely um i mean i do like reading a lot of roger ebbett's old reviews but he was a much more moderate person and yes he put a bit of opinion into it but he was all about often contextualizing movies whereas so many are uh, to do with um pressuring uh, points and it's like some people that do tech reviews they um get very hung up upon quite frivolous things and they forget about what they're they're fundamentally there for and what everybody else that's watching them really wants to know and that's just to uh, follow their love for the product yeah definitely uh so i like to have a discussion it's maybe not the most technically uh you know discuss things about movies but it's more of a free-flowing discussion about what we liked about the movie, why we wanted to watch the movie. So as we get into it, so a brief discussion about film noir. So I'm sure anyone that loves classic movies is really familiar with this genre of classic films. It went from roughly the period of 1944 to 1954, although even now in modern filmmaking there would still be films that are classed as film noir. Um, the films... Uh, I was reading that there was three sort of key things that, that marked the mood of a film noir film, and that was pessimism, fatalism, and just that the nature of man, like the corrupt nature of man. And it was actually the French critics of American films that coined that term from their own, you know, from their own French language, so black film as such. And most of these films are thriller-style films and detective films, and then, Matt, I was also reading that there's sort of four main elements that make a film noir. So there's the anti-hero protagonist, there's the femme fatale, which is still prevalent in a lot of today's films, there's yeah, the snappy dialogue, like get straight to the point, 
And then there's something that you probably be really interested in discussing. There's the high contrast in the mise-en-scene, so what we see in the set of the film, so the colour, the black and white colour that's used. So what's your – I know you love this, this sub-genre. Tell me about your feelings on it. Yes, you're right. I do love it very much. It is very hard to describe now. A lot of uh, film and other um, artistic uh, movements, uh, such as uh, futurism and surrealism, they are often guided by very clear manifestos that a key portion of um, uh, the creators have um, started out at the beginning. But film noir sort of um, uh, doesn't have a clear cut like that. And... You mentioned that uh, quite often uh, they're known for being in the thriller and detective genre, but that it is not necessarily so, because you know that in this show we have already re discussed one film noir. Do you know what that is? Oh, I'm trying to think. But, uh, um, oh, was it one of the Alfred Hitchcock ones? Uh, good guess, but no. Uh, it, it was actually Sunset Boulevard. Oh, yes, yes. That yes, is actually... actually even though, um, like, yes, a crime does get committed at, uh, sort of at the beginning and the end, um, it is actually regarded as a uh, film noir, even though there isn't much of the conventional focus on a detective character. And so it is then interesting when you consider the sort of the moral core that often a lot of um, critics and thinkers judge as being central to what makes film noir. And you did mention uh, also what on the surface can characterize uh, the, the genre quite a bit because uh, like quite often when you go on to uh, uh, YouTube videos uh, where you have all the uh, young uh, cam cameramen talking about how to recreate film noir effects, one of their favorites mm. to, to talk about is the strong shadow through blinds. And that is uh, one of uh, through yeah. Venetian blinds. And that is one of several examples where film noir was really one of the first major Hollywood um, genres where you saw a lot of practical lighting, where the lighting and the mise-en-scene was not uh, a, a fantasy which you could, your brain, where your brain will often forgive it in the time, but in retrospect is illogical. But it's where every shadow, every light... It's cl it's almost always clearly attributable to um, a lighting source within the scene. Yes. Whereas, and this is the same contrast we see now in a a romance or a musical. Quite often, the whole picture will be uh, well lit entirely, and even in a nighttime scene, uh, characters will be impossibly glowing. Whereas. A, uh, in film noir, if a character is lit up from one half, it's because the room they're in, there's only a lamp lit up on one side. If they're lit up by uh, Venetian blind shadows, it's because they're in a dark room and the only light is coming through Venetian blinds with a street lighting. Every bit of light is there for a reason. And quite a lot of the style was informed by a lot of uh, German filmmakers that emigrated uh, from from Germany to America in the 1930s for uh, obvious reasons. Yes. So Orson Welles was also like a touch of evil that's considered film noir as well? Or? It is. It's um, quite a vague genre and um, Facebook forums can get quite intense debating yes. what constitutes <laughs> what. Yeah. And uh, 
that's uh, before you even get into uh, neo-noirs, which are uh, sort of uh, color films that follow into some of the similar themes from the 70s onwards, like Chinatown. Yeah, I, I know there's a lot of um, films from the 80s that, like when you were talking about the Venetian blinds, that reminds me of several films from the 1980s where they're constantly being shot with these lines across their face because the Venetian blinds are on them, a couple of Mickey yes. Rourke films and, uh, you know, yeah, some, you know, sort of those erotic thrillers, I guess you'd call them. But that, <laughs> like, there's a film called Nine and a Half Weeks and I think that whole thing has got Venetian blinds <laughs> from memory. But, um, yeah, it's definitely a really, and there's so many uh, films that were made at that time. So let's go into our first movies. Uh, we're doing two films today who actually do have a connection other than being film noirs. It was when I was researching them I realised, oh, they do have that connection. So we've got Double Indemnity and The Big Sleep. So Double Indemnity was made in 1944, directed by Billy Wilder, written by Billy Wilder, who was such a talented guy, and the novelist Raymond Chandler. Apparently he wanted the original writer of the book to come in and Kane to come in and write it with him. He couldn't get him, so he got Raymond Chandler, who didn't really know anything about writing movies but was very good with the dialogue. So apparently they kept on working and it worked out quite well. So we had Barbara Stanwyck as Phyllis. We had Fred McMurray as is it, it's a Neff, isn't it? N-E-F-F? It's Neff. Walter Neff, I think that was his name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then... Uh, yeah, Ed, yeah, they have these great, like, well-known, rememberable names in this film, so Walter Neff. And then we have one of my favourites, Edward G. Robinson, as Barton, who was working with Fred McMurray's character. So just the quick overview of the plot is an insurance salesman, uh, Fred McMurray, gets involved with a client's wife, who's Barbara Stanwyck, and they hatch a plot to murder or to commit murder, and they have their own various reasons for, for doing this. So I suppose this film like most film noirs i guess the the way it's filmed and like you were saying with the venetian blinds and things like that it's kind of from my mind giving an insight into perhaps the the conflict that the characters are often feeling perhaps like some yeah. of the way is there's and like you were saying with sunset boulevard this film is shot in a similar way that it's set through a, a series of flashbacks so at Sunset Boulevard, we have William Holden's character who essentially was already gone at that time talking about what had happened. And then we have Fred McMurray's character, Neff, who's kind of on his way out, uh, sort of from a, a wound, uh, dictating uh, into a dictaphone about the things that have happened with Barbara Stanwyck's character and their involvement in it. So you what were your thoughts on... on the things aren't going to go well for him. Yeah. <laughs> So I actually really, I, I did like it. It was kind of one of my first forays. I'm sure I've seen some other film noir films. I haven't seen The Maltese Falcon or anything yet, yet. I plan on watching it. Uh, what was your thoughts on this film? Well, one of the reasons, because uh, you asked if I could uh, pick out some film noirs, one of the reasons I picked this out is that it is conventionally regarded as the definitive film noir. And that, and uh, I thought, alongside, we also have to have uh, Humphrey Bogart and Laurent Bacall film as well. So I yeah. thought uh, that would be a perfect pairing to start up with. And in many, it's interesting that the what's regarded as the critically perfect film noir uh, doesn't match the stereotype where you think it has to be following... Um, uh, a Humphrey Bogart type detective in a trench coat. It's actually following uh, the 
storyline of two very ordinary non-criminal life people even though uh, Barbara Stanwyck's character has a way of finding trouble uh, mm-hmm. but that they're um, sort of tying themselves into this uh, tighter and tighter noose yeah because they don't even really seem to it's a lot I mean do they even care about each other or they're just sort of together working on this plot because she wants well, to get some money and well, it's almost like Romeo and Juliet, where they're two star-crossed lovers in a, uh, uh, except instead of uh, being involved in a tragic uh, uh, love mix, they're um, they sort of become out for each, or at least one of them is out for each other, and uh, at the same time that the love fade or the affection fades out, they uh, want to um, serve their own ends. Yeah, yeah, I was reading someone had made, actually Ebert was saying in his review of it that I read that their behaviour runs their motives. So both of them have some pretty shonky sort of behaviour. You know, she's walking around in a bath towel and he's drinking and carrying on and, and really they're very unhappy in their own lives and perhaps at that point in their lives they meet up with another person that's equally as unhappy as they are and then this plan evolves from there. Uh yeah, I, I wasn't used to seeing. I grew up watching Fred McMurray on an old TV show that he used to do, My Three Sons, and I really loved watching him on this old sitcom in the mornings before I used to go to school. So I always knew he'd had this other film career, but it was quite different for me to see him in in such a role. What did you think of the performances in this film? Well, even at the uh, time of that film, he was uh, still used to being in romantic comedies. Uh, and. Mm. It was uh, apparently a bit of a job convincing him to take up the role. And actually, apparently, Billy Wilder had a bit of trouble um, casting, just finding people that were willing to take on um, the parts. Uh, so um, uh, th- there is always the that contrasting against type. But I think uh, we're very lucky that Barbara Stanwyck was in that role. She was uh, quite um, uh, dynamic and... Uh, <sighs> I wouldn't so go so far as to call her evil, but that she was very um, determined, straight down the line. Yes, yes, yeah, she was because we have spoken about her before. In in she was in that Titanic, that nineteen fifty three version of the Titanic that we watched, and she was sort of the mother motherly type in that. Obviously, this film is sort of let's see here forty four. So that was sort of nine years after she made this film with Billy Wilder. So she'd already sort of grown up into the more mature roles. But this is, I guess, is where where she really began to, to get quite famous making this film uh, at the time. But I was actually also reading that, you know, I'm sure our audience is familiar with the Hayes Code. So this was a group of people who got together and did all the film coding for, like, violence and what you could see in films back then, hence the term pre-code era. That was when the films didn't really have any standards um, outright that they were adhering to, adhering to. And they were saying that Billy Wilder actually had trouble getting this film made initially because the Hayes Code thought that a film like this would be hardening the audience to attitudes of crime, you know, because these two people had planned this crime to just kill this person for money. So it's actually interesting that they had to go through, I guess they had to wait a little bit of time to make to make this film. So it's interesting how, and now you just can't get enough of violence on the screen. But 
Yeah, well, it sort of gets to the other end, and um, Hitchcock was kind of right uh, when he was um, living through the final stage of the complete loosening up of uh, sex and violence on screen, that where even when you're allowed to go all the way, kind of, okay, you've done it, what more can you do? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so this film was filmed right in the heart of Los Angeles. It was filmed on studio sets. I'm, I'm wanting to say Paramount because the market scenes that they had were filmed across the road from Paramount and then there was some uh, in sort of suburban sort of, I guess, the Beverly Hills sort of area just around that suburban Los Angeles area they shot that's where Barbara Sandwick lived and and there was probably some uh, further out shooting. But most of it was shot on film sets there. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't really have any opinion of it before I watched it. It just was a very famous film I was aware of and I quite liked it and I really liked seeing Fred McMurray in that role. So your thoughts to wrap up on Double Indemnity? Well, it's kind of a trivial thing to comment on first, but do you know what my uh, favourite visual in that whole movie is? What? Uh, oh, my <laughs> favourite visual in that whole movie, um, it's at the beginning when he's speeding through back to his office and he has to dodge a construction worker and he has like um, like a concrete um, fire lighter or something, or rather the thing they use to um, uh, burn through concrete, and it's like this worker in the pitch darkness is, and he's lighting up this Los Angeles um, public work sign. So it's really uh, in this such a definitive um, demonstration of how a film noir really made use of of the lighting and the environment uh, of, of what was occurring in front of the camera, and it places it so well in that Los Angeles area. That's my uh, favorite uh, visual. Uh, but what I love about film noir, and especially this one, is that even if they didn't necessarily intend it, it often shows so much about the daily lives of people at the, at the time. Like you see uh, our insurance man going about to a bowling alley or picking up a beer from a uh, from a from almost a drive-in a cafe uh, and such. But it's... it's uh, I, th I think it's uh, aged so well, and it's it partially has, yeah. because it's a. Uh, I I wouldn't say that it's a plot that we find most people are likely to get themselves in, but it's an extremely relatable motivation. Yeah, <laughs> well, a lot of things you see like true crime stories going on today, and that's constantly people are trying to bump people off for insurance policies and this person had a life insurance one of the most common reasons be, for doing it well it used to be so easy to take up take out insurance policies on random strangers i'm during the depression there was huge uh, amounts of crime and murder where desperate people just simply took out an insurance person on a distant relative or someone they may not even know at all and uh, try and mm. claim on it uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think some very stressed out accountants at the insurance company. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So if we move on to our second film, uh, 1946, uh, out from Warner Brothers, this one, The Big Sleep, directed by Howard Hawks, uh, written by William Faulkner, Lee Brackett and Jules Firthman. Uh, this one, of course, stars Humphrey Bogart, uh, Lauren Bacall and Martha Vickers. So Bogie was playing Philip Marlowe and Lauren was playing Vivian 
Now, Lauren Bacall was 19 when this film was made and Bogey was 44. Wow. I didn't realise there was such an age difference, but I knew there was sort of a good 15 years. I didn't think it was that that far. This was the second film that they made together. They made To Have and To Have Not the year before. They were paired up again on this film. And, in fact, I was reading that this film was edited in such a way to give the two of them because the public was becoming obsessed with the two of them, which is no different than what happens now with sort of public relations of, of two famous people. So the public was very enamoured with both of them. So I think they did change the focus of the film a little bit more onto Vivian, Lauren Bacall's character. I'm not sure if in the original script she was that prevalent in the film. So the basic plot just for our audience is Marlowe is a a PI, and he's hired by Sternwood, so that's Lauren Bacall and Martha Vickers' father in this film, to help solve um, a few issues going on in the family regarding his daughter Carmen, so that's Martha's character. And as Marlowe gets in deeper with all of these issues in the family, more and more people connected with them seem to get murdered. So this this film has um, not detractors, but a lot of people do say the plot's a bit complex, and it I is. sort of found my... my uh, attention span going off at times because I'm like, hang on, who was that? Who was that person? And in fact, after the film, I had to go through and just reread a detailed plot synopsis. I was like, oh, okay, so she was connected with him, and she was so. But they often say just gloss over that and just enjoy enjoy seeing the two of them on the screen. What are your thoughts on the film? Well, yes, people are right to say the plot can be quite complicated, and that's actually. A bit unusual for the genre because uh, film noir was typically taken, the stories were typically taken from a lot of pulp fiction uh, stories that were, and that kind of liberated the genre in a way because they weren't um, held down by the restrictions of a great literary piece. And so they could focus on the cinematic qualities. And uh, so people yes. love the, um, the, the gunfights and the romance. And so you can, and this would have been uh, definitely a whole uh, dream for the publicity department because they went to so much work fabricating pairings like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, but to actually have uh, some real uh, chemistry that, and they could give some actual real footage to the newspapers. You can tell they were uh, loving that. Ah, uh, yeah, and and they were actually a happily married couple. I mean, he died. You know, he was a lot older than her, but he died not an old man, but he died of cancer. So, as she said, we were in love and we did love each other. So that's a good thing, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing for a it's one thing for a couple like that to be together on screen because you can get away with a lot of uh, uh, sort of theatrical relation uh, relationships uh, because of the circumstances of the film, but the, that they um. Well, if that they um, found such a good relationship with each other um, in real life, um, good good for them. Uh, glad they were happy. Um, yeah, yeah, they had two kids, and she actually her partner after he died was another well known actor, Sam Robards, who worked well into the eighties and nineties himself. So I and she had a child, so she had two children with Humphrey and one child with him. So. Yeah, she definitely sort of had an interesting life being married to these. And she was, she was, you know, so young at the time when she made this film and I was reading that some of his issues with them getting officially married and everything was the fact that he wanted a wife to be at home with him. He hadn't yet had children at that stage. And she was like, yeah, okay, I'm willing to do that, even at the age of 19, 20. 
and she did that and then obviously she always she resumed her career after that and and was making films into the 2000s but uh, that was quite a brave thing that she did, but she said that she didn't regret it. And she is such a beautiful looking, such a beautiful striking woman and such a great femme fatale in this, in this genre. I can understand why they would have wanted to put the focus on her character, definitely. She, she had an interesting look because she was beautiful, but she had such a strong face. Yeah, she's what they call a handsome woman. Yeah. So a very like that. Uh, yeah, well, I actually saw a uh, bit of old um, colour 8mm home movie footage of them on a uh, Humphrey Bogart's uh, yacht because he was a keen yachtsman and there was a scene of her where she was just sort of on the boat, uh, no makeup or anything, and yeah, she uh, she uh, did make quite an impression, even uh, you could tell that even through the grainy 8mm film. Yeah, and it's I think it's great that they had the, the ability to shoot a lot of this footage. It's it's nice to see some of these people in their happier years and, and at least the time that she had with him was, was a good time and they were actually suitably matched despite the sort of 23, 24-year year age difference. So, I, I look, I thought the film was fine. I enjoyed seeing the two of them. I enjoyed the look of the film. The pacing of the film was fine. I just found, for me, the plot got a little bit convoluted and as a result, my attention sort of tended to drift because I was like, hang on, who's this person again and what do they do? But, you know, it could have just been also my frame of mind. Maybe I wasn't in the in the right frame of mind to watch it and, I, had, you know, there was a few other things going on at the time. So I probably prefer Double Indemnity over The Big Sleep, but I do want to see The Maltese Falcon. Um, what, what do you think of The Big Sleep? Well, definitely... Um like, I've read the book, The Big Sleeper, was a few years ago, but even in that, the plot is um, rather complicated. It's sort of um, halfway through between a thriller and a whodunit, and so it perhaps uh, could have been adapted better to uh, cinema. I mean, usually usually it's uh, that um, when you have great action scenes and on the screen uh, romantic uh, chemistry, it's that it's carries, it carries through... A plot, a plot that's not very strong, not that mm-hmm. it carries through a plot that's extremely complicated. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, maybe they were going for a little bit too much, maybe. Maybe, or who knows, maybe somebody just didn't read the plot out, the script out loud um, in the editing room. Who knows? I The parts I really loved were how um, clever Philip Marlowe, the character, could be at times orchestrating around danger so we have the young guy who we know is about to get poisoned or killed by a hitman and he knows how to keep aside at just the right time another time when he sets up that same hitman to be uh, shot i'm doing a bit of a rendezvous with uh, behind a car with whistle signals and everything and um, mm-hmm. I-, I keep getting relieved um that when they keep going back to over and over again to the Geiger House, where there was the blackmail um, film taken of uh, Lauren Bacall's sister, because I'm just like, fine, just so grateful, just a little bit of consistency in the story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely, uh, there's, yeah, I mean, I guess for me, in terms of what I like to see in films, is I'm a bit more kitchen sink drama, which, uh, I guess classic films are not renowned for, but I like to see a little bit of daily life between the characters. And I don't think 
you know, you've got that sort of suspension of, of belief sort of thing. And I guess a film noir, you really have to get into the genre and just accept it for what it is. You can't think that the characters are going to be concerned with doing the dishes or anything like that. So it was a good first foray into it. It's weird, though, that you have Hitchcock uh, saying that he didn't want to do a musical or a historical picture because he literally said you never know where they're going to the bathroom. But then I'm thinking uh, we never see Bogart take a leak either. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I mean, I, yeah, and I think it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, they, they enjoyed them for what they were and it was nice to actually start a journey into the genre because, as I said, I've only ever seen bits and pieces of different other films. I've never actually sat through a complete film noir, I don't think. I think I've mostly concentrated on more comedies and, and back when I was really into classic films when I was younger and I'm getting back into it now with you. So, uh, yeah, so it was good to see them and thank you for your suggestions. Very much appreciated. So we'll let our audience know what we'll be doing for our next show. I think is this our – so this is our 12th episode. They're about right? I, think, I think it's 12 because I think we've been doing it for roughly six months and that would make 12 episodes. So Jesus. Matt and I have never – yeah, I know. Matt and I don't know what it's like to do to do this this concept together without being in lockdown or doing it remotely. So we are looking forward to when we can record properly together. I need to get some new equipment. I want to get some things happening with our Facebook page and actually doing a website with lots of articles and things on it. So it makes it a bit more interactive and interesting. So please bear with us. We're trying to get things going a bit more. It's just been really tough because we're in quite a severe lockdown. So and it's, we don't really know when it's going to end, to be honest with you. So uh, two films that we're doing. Matt has suggested these, which I'm looking forward to seeing. It is a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers double, and Matt will give us just a little bit of insight into that before we go. So we're doing Follow the Fleet, 1936, and Shall We Dance, 1937. And, Matt, what were you saying before the show started about their interaction, Fred and Ginger? Um. Well, that they... Unlike uh, unlike uh, Bergen and Bacall, as far as I know, their relationship was purely professional. Uh, but they were one of the major Hollywood pairs through the 30s until the... I can't remember if they were still making pictures during uh, the war years, and I think they had a reunion again in the mid-50s. But yes. they did a lot of the, the major uh, dance mu musicals of the period. Fred Astaire actually had a major technological um, impact in terms of the portrayal of dance and film. And so it'll be great to discuss this. Uh, and uh, yeah. if you're into um, a lot of big band and swing music, an exciting thing about uh, Shall We Dance is that actually George Gershwin himself composed the score for this movie. And it, I don't think it was that long before he died. Yeah, what was this? Hang on. What was this? What was the song I was singing? Oh, they can't take that away from me. Was that the yeah, one? Yeah, it was stuck in your head for a week. <laughs> uh, it's probably better let them sing it in the film. <laughs> you know? Well, oh, I, I enjoy films with a bit of music. Um, so we're going to do those, and it'll be a bit more of a lighter mood and a bit more sort of fun. But I have enjoyed taking a first step into film noir. Now, before we go, Matt started a new YouTube channel. Did you want to just briefly let the audience know about that before we go. Oh, thank you very much, Rachel. I, I didn't expect to be uh, doing a plug like this, uh, but um, uh, I'll do a brief one. So I have started a 
new YouTube channel uh, myself called The Photo Editor because one of my uh, great passions is photography. And so I actually edit my digital photographs uh, live on my computer screen. And so if you like getting to know about different editing techniques, uh, particularly in uh, Lightroom and uh, a bit of Photoshop as well, it's a... Uh, uh, I hope you uh, might get some uh, good idea of following along, uh, yeah. or may just uh, uh, like the sound of my voice while I talk about endlessly about my photos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I've seen I've seen a, a parts of a few of the episodes you've done, and they, for someone that's interested in learning more about photography and editing and using the editing suite that you use. Like we've got a mutual friend who's very into photography and she's quite keen to check it out. So check out Matt's um, channel. Uh, maybe, Matt, if you can just put uh, a link into, feel free to put it into our YouTube channel as well just so they know they can jump over there and find it. But in the meantime, we'll see you next time. I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. And thank you very much for being with us. Take care.